Quick note, thanks for listening to this episode. If you're not already subscribed, do subscribe. And if you're on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, leave me a rating. It helps tremendously and helps the podcast reach more people. Without further ado, let's get into it. Even now, after so many years, all this is somehow a very bad memory for me. I have many bad memories now but shouldn't I end my notes here? I think it was a mistake to begin writing them. At any rate, I've been feeling ashamed all the time I've been writing this story. It's not so much literature as corrective punishment. After all, to tell, for example, long stories about how I've ruined my life through my moral degradation in my corner, through the lack of an appropriate environment, through a divorce from real life, and through vainglorious spite in the underground. This, honest to God, is not interesting. A novel needs a hero, whereas here, all the traits for an anti-hero have been assembled on purpose. But chiefly, all this produces an awfully unpleasant impression because all of us are divorced from life. All of us limp along, some more, some less. We are so divorced from it that we sometimes feel a sort of revulsion to real living life and therefore can't bear to be reminded of it. We've reached a point where we almost regard real living as a labor, and sometimes akin to civil service, and inwardly all of us agree that it's better in books. And why do we mill around sometimes? Why are we being so capricious? What are we asking for? We ourselves don't know what. It would be worse for us if our capricious demands were fulfilled. Go on, try. Give any of us, for example, a little more independence, untie our hands, widen the sphere of our activity, relax the supervision over us, and we, yes, I assure you, we would at once beg to be taken under supervision again. I know that you might get angry with me for that and begin shouting and stamping your feet, speak for yourself, you'll say and about your own miseries in the underground, but don't you dare say all of us. Excuse me, gentlemen, but I am not justifying myself with that all of us. As for what concerns me in particular, in my life I've only carried to an extreme what you haven't dared to carry even halfway. And what's more, you've mistaken your cowardice for good sense, and thus have found comfort in deceiving yourselves. So that perhaps, after all, I am more alive than you are. Take a closer look at it. After all, we don't even know where life lives now and what it is or what it's called. Leave us to ourselves without our books and we'll get confused and lose our way at once. We won't know what to attach ourselves to, what to hold on to, and what to love and what to hate, what to respect and what to despise. We're even oppressed by having to be human beings. Human beings with our own real body and blood. We're ashamed of this. We consider it a disgrace and attempt to be some sort of non-existent, universal human beings. We're stillborn, and we've long ceased to be begotten by living fathers. And that pleases us more and more. We're acquiring a taste for it. Soon we'll think up a way to be born from an idea But enough, I don't want to write any more from the underground. 
That is an excerpt from Notes from Underground by Fyodor Dostoevsky. And let me say that one, I think as most of the other books, you should read this. But second, the caveat is this book is depressing. But it is extremely insightful insofar as it dives into the core of what makes us human. So Notes from the Underground is written by Dostoevsky, but it's a fictional confession about a man who is battling the irrationality of being a human. And we'll go into more depth later on. The person I'm going to be referring to in this book, we'll just call him the underground man. So a bit of background on when this book was written. So this book was written over several months, and it was during a very rough time for Dostoevsky. His wife was dying with tuberculosis, and he was having trouble with publishing some of his work. He, he wanted to criticize the rise of utopian thinking in Russia and the rationalism that was coming in from, from, from France and from Germany. So what we read was what the underground man wraps up, his confession. And so who is this underground man? So this underground man is a nihilist, right? He's arrogant, but he's also weak. He has no courage, and he's very resentful of people and of the world as a whole. He was an orphan, and so he never really had a proper attachment to people. And this is what he goes on to say. And at one point he says, I know that I am a bastard, a villain, an egoist, and a lazy idler. So what does he actually do? So he is a government bureaucrat. He's a civil servant who absolutely hated his job. He hated his career, but he did it. As he says, he did it just so that he could eat food. So he says, I am a collegiate assessor. I served in the civil service so that I could eat and only for that reason. Then last year, one of my distant relatives left 6,000 rubles in his will. I retired at once and took up residence here in my corner. So here's a man who had no real desire to help people. Here's a man who only worked simply for the pay, nothing else, just for his sustenance. As a result of this, what you see is a man who goes out of his way to make the lives of those who interact with him miserable. And so he says, I've been living this way for a long time, for about 20 years. I am 40 years old now. I used to work in the civil service, but I no longer do. I was an evil and angry official. I was rude, and I found pleasure in rudeness. And after all, since I didn't take bribes, I had to reward myself in some other way. When petitioners would approach my desk for information, I'd gnash my teeth at them and feel an insatiable pleasure if I succeeded in disappointing someone. And I almost always succeeded. So you're starting to get a picture of who this underground man is. right? He is somebody who despises people. He's somebody who loves to be cynical and also pass on that negativity onto others. But here's the thing. The underground man is not a foolish person. He's not dumb. He's well-read, extremely educated. And so what you get is somebody who is so thoughtful, overly thoughtful, overanalyzes everything, extremely conscious of everything that he does and all the potential impact that it will have. That's also what makes him such a good anti-hero. So he says, I am guilty, first of all, because I am more intelligent than everyone around me. I've always regarded myself as more intelligent than everyone around me. And sometimes, believe it or not, I have even been ashamed of it. 
At least all my life, I've never been able to look directly into people's eyes, but I've always looked sort of to the side. Now, when he's in school, when he's a young lad, what ends up happening is that he is bullied. He's an outcast. He's despised by his classmates, but he wants their approval. He wants their praises. So what the underground man does when he's a boy is that he starts focusing on learning and reading. And he starts reading books that are beyond the scope of what's in the curriculum. And he gets to a point where teachers start to notice him because he's answering all the questions. His students start to notice him because the teachers are noticing him. He starts to get better grades than everybody else and he starts to rise in the ranks, in the academic ranks. And now you can see how this can lead somebody to go and start pursuing a career path where you're always going to be getting praises. You're always dependent on somebody else's praise. And that's why he goes to civil service, because in one sense, you are serving the people, but really in the way that he sees it, the people are serving you because they are dependent on your approval. They're dependent on you approving their applications. He says, it gradually dawned on all of them, meaning his classmates, that I had already read books none of them could read and understood things not forming part of our school curriculum about which they had not even heard of. And you're seeing this man at a very early age, what he's going to become. You're seeing somebody dependent on the external praises of others. As we've talked about in the Epictetus episode, in the Buddha episode, that the dependence you have on the external approval and accolades is what will be destructive to you ultimately because your emotions, your character, everything about you will become dependent on somebody else. And this destroys you because you start to live for somebody else. You start to do things to impress other people. And this is not simply just the case for young people. This is the case for people in their 30s, in their 50s, in their 60s, even in their 70s. If you have not overcome the desire to want to please others, you will always want to please others, no matter what it is, no matter what form or shape it takes. It could be that you want the approval of others by gaining status. You know, one of the things that you see, it turns into this unending cycle of seeking approval. Now, with the underground man, what is interesting is that because he's intelligent and because he overanalyzes things, it prevents him from actually taking action most of the time. And we'll see this later on. And one thing that he says as to why he never succeeded in doing anything in his life, right, is because he thinks too much. So he says, now I want to tell you gentlemen why I never succeeded in becoming even an insect. Let me tell you solemnly that many times I desired to become an insect, but I wasn't worthy even of that. I swear to you gentlemen, That to be acutely conscious is a sickness, a real and full-fledged sickness. For common human purposes, it would be more than sufficient to possess ordinary human consciousness. That is, even 50% or 25% less than the amount of consciousness available to the cultivated man of our unhappy 19th century. And especially to the cultivated man of our unfortunate enough to live in Petersburg, the most abstract and premeditated city on the face of the earth, right? You're getting this idea of someone who thinks he's better than anybody else, who also thinks that because he's more intelligent, he has more consciousness. But precisely for those reasons, he 
cannot do anything because he overthinks and, and sees all the logical implications of his actions. So he ends up never taking those actions. And the underground man hates people who take action. And we'll see this again. But one of the things that he hates about it is because he views himself in direct contradiction to them. He sees himself as lazy, as I mentioned earlier in the quote. And one of the other things that the underground man enjoys is seeing other people suffer. He doesn't want to be the only one suffering, so he wants to inflict suffering on others. How he does this is through words, and he's very he's very articulate. He's able to manipulate his words such that it hurts the other person, or he does things that are very hurtful to people or annoys people, and he likes this. He's sort of an energy vampire, if you can call it that. At one point, he mentions how having a toothache, you can turn that into a form of pleasure, not because the pain itself is pleasurable, but because the pain that you feel, if you can manipulate in such a way that other people around you get annoyed by the pain because of all your moaning, he says, that is pleasurable. And so I quote, well, it's precisely in all these consciousness and shamefulness that the pleasure lies. So I'm disturbing you, piercing your heart with my moans, keeping everyone in the house from sleeping. Well, don't sleep then. You too should feel every minute that my teeth ache. For you, I'm no longer a hero as I tried to seem before. I'm just a nasty little man, a shitty worm. Well, so be it. I'm delighted. You've figured me out. Are you sick of listening to my vile little moans? Well, be sick then. Here's an even nastier catizen for you. So, you don't understand even now, gentlemen? No, it's obvious that one needs to reach an extreme point of development in consciousness before one can understand all the ins and outs of this kind of pleasure. You're laughing? I'm delighted. My jokes, gentlemen, are, of course, in bad taste, even incoherent, full of self-mistrust. But, after all, that's because I don't respect myself. Can a man with consciousness have the slightest respect for himself? And the reason he says you cannot have respect for yourself when you reach the heights of consciousness that he's attained, the sort of intelligence that he's gone to, is because you know the irrationality of what it means to be human, right? You know the contradiction that lies within yourself. And this is, you know, why I think you should go and read Notes from the Underground. And it's, you know, very different from all the other books that we've read and studied so far, because all the other books are, if you could call it positive, right? They are sort of giving you a rule of life, how they, they've lived, how they think, what they think, philosophies on how to live meaningfully, philosophies on how to find purpose in your life at whatever age. Whereas with Notes from the Underground, you're seeing the opposite version, right? The the flip side of the universe where if you took none of the advice, you took none of the guidance from these books that we're reading, what your life could look like, what your actions would look like, what type of man or woman you would be in 30, 40 years down the line. And precisely the type of person you don't want to be is become the man from the underground. Right? Because the man from the underground is a man who takes no action, who's a coward, who's resentful, hateful, unforgiving. And his heart is filled with malice. And he will happily admit it because he derives pleasure from it. One of the interesting things with the man from the underground is that there are spurts where he envisions a life that we would call a good life, 
right? Where he is able to love somebody for who they are, to love himself. But what always ends up happening is that he goes, ah, but I don't want to live that life. I prefer this underground, horrid life that I'm living. And so he says, I invented adventures for myself, authored my own life in order to have at least some sort of life to live. How many times it happened that, well, for example, I'd get offended for no reason on purpose. And at such times, you yourselves know that you're getting offended for no reason, that you're pretending, but you work yourself up to such a point that in the end, you really do become offended. And this summarizes the underground man, right? He always has to find a way to make his life worse than it seems. And if it's not, he'll try to make somebody else's life worse. And two things that I note down here is one, the idea of how thinking about getting offended ends up offending you is sort of the reality that we're existing in. People are easy to get offended simply by the thought of getting offended by something, right? This is the epitome of fragility. And the underground man is the epitome of fragility. And the second thing that I wrote down here is the truth is that you create the reality you exist in. If you envision your life as a series of unfortunate events, that is how your life is going to be. If your life is filled with malice, with unforgiveness, with resentment, your life will look extremely horrible. You will despise every minute of your life, right? You will live your life vicariously through the suffering of others, through the pain that you inflict on others. And the opening sentence in Notes from Underground is this, I am a sick man. I am an evil man. I am an unattractive man. I think my liver is sick. It hurts. And he goes on to say how he refuses to go to the doctor, even though he knows the doctor would be able to help him because he simply does not want to go to the doctor. And why does he say he's an evil? Why does he say he's a sick man? It's precisely because the underground man, one of the things that he realizes early on is that human beings are irrational creatures. Right. They are both rational insofar as they can do logical things and do, but they are also in the same vein able to take those logical things and do very destructive, chaotic things, things that will destroy humanity. And the underground man is not incorrect in this. You see how we have gone from, as Eckhart Tolle mentions in The Power of Now, we went from being able to fight each other with clubs to then creating an atomic bomb and dropping it on a nation and killing hundreds of thousands of people. And the underground man, obviously, is writing way before the atomic bomb is dropped. And the other thing that the underground man beautifully illustrates is this dichotomy of knowing that something's not good for you and still doing that thing. So he says, here's what I'm absolutely certain of. Not only too much consciousness, but even any consciousness at all is sickness. I insist on this. Tell me this. How did it happen that as if on purpose, during those very same moments, yes, those very same moments when I was most capable of being conscious of all the subtleties of everything that was beautiful and sublime. As they used to say here once upon a time, how did it happen then that my consciousness would stop working and instead I would do such indecent things, things which, well, things in short, which even though everybody does them, perhaps, but which as if on purpose, I did exactly when I was most conscious that they shouldn't be done at all. The more I was conscious of the good and of all this beautiful and sublime stuff, the deeper I sank into my shit. 
and the more capable I was of becoming totally admired in it. But here's the main thing. It was as if none of this was accidental in me. It was as if all necessarily had to be. It was as if this was my natural condition, not some sickness and not some rot in me, so that finally I had lost all inclination to struggle against this rot. It ended by my almost believing, and maybe I really did believe, that this is perhaps, in fact, my normal condition. What the underground man says there perfectly describes the struggle that we get in, where you know that not forgiving somebody, for example, is not good for you, is not helpful to you, because it ultimately ends up hurting you the most. Yet we will happily sit in that resentment and let it just burn us until we get to a point where we realize that this is hurting us more than we wanted to. And so you end up forgiving. But you could have forgiven that person much earlier. This is the type of thing that the underground man has realized and has concluded. And for that reason, underground man lives in the way that he lives, right? He chooses to live in the underground, the hole in the ground, because that's what he chooses. And one of the things that, you know, Dostoevsky specifically is writing against is the utopianism and the rationality, age of rationality, where the idea was, what if we can engineer people in such a way that we can predict exactly what somebody's going to do and what and why they're going to do something? If we can understand human programming such that we don't need to make choices anymore, that they're given directions to act and, and live so that there's always going to be peace that there will never be fighting. Because once we can figure out why somebody gets angry and are able to prevent this from happening, then there will be no fighting. And Dostoevsky, through the underground man, is saying that is totally absurd. It's absurd because to be human is to be irrational in the sense in which we just read. Where even at the height of understanding the subtleties of what is beautiful and what is sublime, you will often do the exact opposite. And I think the underground man is right in so far as free will within human beings is what separates us. And if you take away the freedom of choice from somebody, they are no longer going to be human. You will crush their will to meaning. And we know from Viktor Frankl, episode 001, when you take somebody's will to meaning away, they will rot and slowly disintegrate and lose all ability to live in this life because they have nothing to live for. And so the underground man goes to the far extreme and says, nothing can bound me. I don't want to take actions because if I take action, I'm making myself responsible and I am, I'm binding myself to my word. And that is not freedom, according to the underground man. What we're seeing is somebody going to the far extreme and we're seeing somebody understanding an aspect of what is good and what is a unique in human being and taking to the far extreme, but also seeing the evil that it can come from it. And this is why the underground man hates people who take action. So he says, all spontaneous people and men of action are active precisely because they're dumb and limited. How can one explain this? Here's how. As a result of their limitation, these men of action take the most immediate and secondary causes for their primary ones. They thus become convinced more swiftly and easily than others that they've found an indisputable foundation for their activity and so they find peace. And after all, that's the main thing. The underground man is specifying that the reason the men of action are dumb is precisely because they misunderstand 
why they're doing the things that they're doing. And in them finding the peace there, you know, they're, they're misconstruing their purpose. And then the underground man goes on a few pages later to describe himself, right? And, and this is somebody who talks but never takes any action. He preaches but does not practice what he preaches. He doesn't have any skin in the game. So, and I quote, Whenever he prepares for any undertaking, this gentleman immediately explains to you pompously and clearly precisely how he is required to act in accordance with the law of reason and truth. As if that's not enough, he'll talk to you excitedly and passionately about true and normal human interest. With a mocking smile, he'll reproach the short-sighted simpletons who understand neither their own profit nor the true meaning of virtue. And then, precisely a quarter of an hour later, without any sudden external cause, but simply because of something inside him, which is stronger than all his interests. He completely reverses himself. That is, he'll act in obvious opposition to what he was just saying. And this is precisely the life of the underground man. He'll want to get in a duel with somebody, but then once they've decided they're going to get in a duel, once he's decided fully in his mind, he'll end up changing his mind because... He doesn't want to be obligated to what he's committed himself to. Or he'll say, I'm not going to pay my servant the seven rubles that's due to him because I want to lord it over him. I want to have the power over him. But then he'll easily break his own word. He'll break his bond just like that on a dime. And so the question is why? And the answer is the power of choice. Always wants to have the choice to say no and to go against himself. And for that reason, the underground man brings up the example of Cleopatra. Cleopatra liked sticking pins into the breasts of her slave girls and took pleasure in their screams and writhing. And this is Cleopatra, he says, is somebody who had everything before her. She could do whatever she wanted to do, but then she would act in this irrational way of purposely causing harm to her slave girls because she took pleasure in this thing. And similarly... The underground man himself takes pleasure in his own suffering and pleasure in so far as he wants to live in that suffering. The underground man is rallying against rationalism to show that man is irrational through and through. The underground man doesn't want to be a piano key or an organ stop, as he calls it. He doesn't want to be a machine a cog in the machine, even though his whole life for 20 years serving in, in the government, being a civil servant, was precisely that. He was a cog in the machine. He was a man who had to follow orders from his managers, yet this is the contradiction that he lives in. His life is both someone who is a piano key that he's being played on by the government, by the managers, by the upper officers, but also trying to forge his own destiny by precisely not forging his own destiny. And so the underground man comments, he'll immediately be transformed from a man into an organ stop or something of the sort, because what is a man without desires and without will, if not an organ stop? And by he, he's simply just referring to anybody whose freedom of choice has been removed. And he goes on to say, what can one expect from man if he is a being endowed with such strange qualities? Shower him with all the earthly blessings. Submerge him in happiness over his head so that only little bubbles pop up on the surface of happiness as if it were water. 
Give him such economic prosperity that he'll have absolutely nothing left to do but sleep, eat cake, and busy himself with the non-cessation of world history. And even then, out of sheer ingratitude, out of sheer perversity, he, man that is, would still do something vile. He'll risk losing his cake and deliberately desire the most pernicious rubbish, some absurdity that would ruin his economic prosperity solely in order to inject his pernicious, fantastic element into all this positive good sense. Prior to this, the underground man says, man is stupid, phenomenally stupid, that is. Even though he is not really stupid at all, he's so ungrateful that you can't find another being like him. The point that Dostoevsky's making here is man loves his freedom. And more specifically, the underground man is saying man must always have the freedom to choose. And this is why we do the things that are hurtful to us and others, even when we are fully conscious of our actions. And we're going to see this later on when the underground man talks about Lisa, who is a, a girl that he meets and how he does precisely this to her. But staying on this idea of freedom to choose and freedom to build, freedom to act, the underground man says, man loves to create and to build roads. That's indisputable. But why does he love also destruction and chaos so passionately? Tell me if you can. Isn't it possible that he loves destruction and chaos so passionately? After all, there's no disputing that sometimes he does love them very much. That's how it is because he instinctively is afraid of attaining his goal and finishing the edifice he's building. He only loves the process of attaining the goal and not the goal itself. And then on the next page, he says, he loves the process of attaining, but hardly likes the attainment. And that, of course, is awfully funny. In short, man is organized comically. There seems to be a kind of joke in all of this. And I think the underground man understands human psychology extremely well in just that section when you think about your own life and you think about having goals and you think about the visions that you have more often than not it is chasing after those things it is in the activities that lead to the attainment of whatever goal it is that is what you enjoy the most and that's the idea that it is the process that we're in love with the process of attaining goals the process of attaining our vision that is what gives the fulfillment. And he's not wrong because Chixinmiai writes in Flow, in the episode we did, that the state of flow that you get in is precisely when you are doing activities towards some goal. But what ends up happening is when you are fully invested, meaning you're fully engrossed and in love with the process, that is when you're going to hit heights of flow and fulfillment that you're not going to get from attaining it. And it's so interesting that Dostoevsky is able to understand it and portray it through the underground man, who, who is precisely the type of man we do not want to become, the type of person we don't want to become. But the underground man understands the human mind better than anybody else, and that is a given. It's the chasing that we are after. It's a chasing after prey, the beast, you know, our ancestors chasing after their food, conquering mountains and nations, Right? All of this, it's all about the chase. And quickly you realize once you attain that goal, once you are able to get that, the joy and the satisfaction that you get from it, from having climbed the highest mountain, from having conquered all these people, from having won battles, from 
having defeated your enemy, that joy and that satisfaction is fleeting. It is impermanent. And there is nothing you can do about it. And so what you end up doing is, is you end up seeking for more. And the more is uncapped. That is why greed is a vice. If you do not understand yourself, you will be insatiable in your desire for more, for your greed. Your greed is uncapped. There is a beautiful question that the underground man asks that we should ask ourselves. The question is, can one be perfectly honest even with oneself and not be afraid of the whole truth? Can you be perfectly honest with yourself, with who you are, what your desires are, what your faults are, what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are, and be able to have this idea of yourself in front of you and not be afraid of who you are? Because I think this question penetrates what it means to live with conviction. Because if you can understand yourself honestly and through that be able to express yourself in an honest way, right? I think that is the goal to express yourself in such an honest way because what you are saying is true not only to who you are but what you believe in, the convictions that you have. And when you are not afraid of that, then you're not afraid of expressing yourself honestly. Now, the underground man is somebody who in one sense is able to express himself honestly, but he also knows that he's expressing himself in a way that looks good to the reader. So he's again, not expressing himself as honest as possible. And that's again, the contradiction that you see in how the underground man is trying to portray human nature. So he depicts himself as this, it's perfectly clear to me now that as a consequence of my infinite vanity and therefore of the high standard I set for myself, I very often looked at myself with a frenzied dissatisfaction, verging on loathing. And for that reason, in my own mind, I attributed my view to everyone else. For example, I hate my own face. I found it to be foul and even suspected that there was something vile in my expressions. And therefore, every time I arrived at work, I made an excruciating effort to behave as independently as possible and to assume as noble an expression as possible so that people wouldn't suspect me of being vile. These are all the games that the underground man is playing in his own head. Whether people see him as vile, whether people think that his face is contorted, it didn't matter to him because the reality that the underground man had created for himself was much stronger than the reality that was outside of himself. And the lesson for us is precisely that. It is the image that you have for yourself, how you view yourself in the mirror, the man that is standing before you. Who is that man? How do you see that man? And if you see that man as somebody who's weak, who's cowardly, who's ugly, who is, who's lacking integrity, who's lacking courage, then that is the way that you're going to act out. And it doesn't matter, again, what age we're talking about, right? The point is Dostoevsky is writing this for somebody who's in his 40s. It's not like a 40-year-old man when he gets to 60, is if he's never thought about idea that he has himself and never reflected deeply on it, that he's somehow magically going to change. You're not supposed to be the same person you were at 18 than when you are at 45, and then when you are at 65, then when you are at 85. If you're the same person, your and your character is never developed, there is something that you have missed. But with the underground man, he knew full well all the flaws that he has, but refused to change it. So he says, 
Perhaps I was the only one in the whole office who constantly imagined that I was a coward and a slave. And I imagined that precisely because I was refined. He thinks that he's able to see all these flaws because he's intelligent. And because he's intelligent, he's not going to make an effort to change these things because then you become an action-oriented man. And action-oriented men are dumb, according to the underground man. So what is interesting is that the underground man, one, has no friends, no family. And so he needs some sort of interaction with the world. And what he ends up doing is he ends up doing that through books because he finds that those are the only things, those ex- the only external, what he says, external sensations that, that created any sense of feeling in him. And I quote, at home, to begin with, I spent most of my time reading. There was a desire to use external sensations to stifle all that was continuously seething in me. And of all the external sensations, the only one I had at my disposable was reading. Reading helped a lot, of course. It agitated, delighted, and tormented me. Now, he's reading here because he doesn't have the TV. He doesn't have social media. He doesn't have a phone. But if the underground man were to live, he would be someone who uses all the distractions that the smartphone offers, that all the distraction that the computer offers, because it would be through that, right? It would be through going on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram to be delighted, to be agitated, to be tormented by seeing the way other people are living and being jealous about it. But because the underground man is living back in 1864, he doesn't have these things and books are the only access that he has. What is interesting is that the underground man is all of us. There is the underground man in every single one of us. Right? The one who doesn't want to change, he is the lower man. He loves to cause harm to himself. He loves to cause suffering on other people. He loves to think that he is smarter than everybody, more intelligent, has a higher consciousness than everybody. Right? He is that prideful creature within you. And that is why I think Dostoevsky's done such a magnificent piece of writing here that you really feel like you're understanding the underground man when you're reading it. Reading it was tough, not because it was hard to read, but because it was depressing at times to read. And realizing that if we're not careful, we can turn out to be like the underground man is a scary thought. And because the underground man lacked any sort of human interaction and spent most of his time reading. He longed for human interaction, as strange as that sounds, even though it was vile to him and even though he would get hurt sometimes. And he would purposely try to place himself in situations where he would get any attention, whether that was good or bad. So for example, he goes, he's walking down the street and he passes a tavern. He sees a bar fight and he sees a man getting flung through the glass And this stirs something in him. So then he wants to join the fight. He goes inside the tavern. But the funny thing is nobody notices him, right? Because he's a small statured person. And he's sort of sitting there, standing there, wanting for this fight to happen to him. But all that happens is an officer is trying to get past him. A much taller officer comes in front of him, grabs his shoulders with his two hands and moves the underground man and then passes him. And this annoys him so much so that it sparks an obsessive hunt to figure out who this officer is, who this officer is to not notice him, to 
not even start a quarrel with him. So the underground man says, the devil knows what I would have given for an authentic quarrel, a correct and decent one, a more literary one, so to speak. I had emaciated. However, the quarrel was in my hand. All I had to do was protest. And they certainly would have thrown me out the window, but I changed my mind and preferred to be a resentful retreat. He goes on to say, I left the tavern embarrassed and agitated and went straight home. Don't think that it was cowardice that made me slink away from the officer. I've never been a coward at heart, although I've always been a coward in action. But don't be in a hurry to laugh. I have an explanation for this. Rest assured, I have an explanation for everything. You're getting this idea <laughs> of a man who is able to justify everything. A man who's so well-versed and so articulate and so knowledgeable that he can retrospectively justify everything. And there are lots of people who can do this. But the funny thing about the, the underground man is that he always tries to justify his action, but in trying to justify it, realizes that it's not working. And so tries to make it into a joke. Now, with this interaction, the reason this interaction is a fascinating take on psychology of the underground man is he finds out who this officer is finds out where he lives writes a letter to this officer requesting a duel but he ends up not sending the letter and then he goes on to justify why he doesn't end up sending the letter and i quote i composed a beautiful charming letter to him imploring him meaning the officer to apologize to me and hinting rather plainly at a duel in case of his refusal then he goes on in the letter uh, near the end. I didn't send the letter to him. Cold shiver runs down my back when I think of what might have happened if I had sent it. What does the underground man do instead? He instead realizes that this officer walks down the streets of Nevsky frequently and, and, and so wants to bump into him and thinks that if he can bump into him, then they can have a real quarrel. Not like the last time where the officer didn't pay single attention to him. You're seeing that the underground man is very petty in this sense. So the underground man goes and uses all his money to buy the best clothes that he has, simply to wear it to then bump into the officer. Previous to this, he says, I made every preparation and I was quite determined, but every time it seemed there would be a collision, meaning between him and the officer. I'd look around and once again, I'd step aside for him and he'd pass by without noticing me. But this time, it was going to be different because he, he had spent all his money buying the finest clothes just so that he could bump into the officer. And when it finally happened, the officer simply kept walking and didn't even turn around. And this frustrated the underground man. It frustrated him because he spent all this effort trying to get to the officer built up all this courage as he says but then when it actually came time the first time that he turns into a man of action and bumps into the officer nothing happens and it infuriates him even more and later on in the confession he goes to a high school reunion with some of his acquaintances who he's never been friends with but he goes simply to one-up them and he ends up getting into an argument with them during the night and again, ends up challenging one of them to a duel. Yet when the time comes, he says, actually, yeah, let's not do a duel. I, I apologize for my actions. You know, I, I, missed, I wronged you. I drank too much wine. I was drunk. And he makes all these excuses and continues to do this. There's a moment in which you truly see what the underground man is about. 
And what the underground man is somebody who has never changed since he was able to get. So back when he was in school, if you remember, he didn't have any friends. And when he was starting to become, uh, when he was starting to get noticed by teachers, he had one friend, one true friend. And the underground man describes himself at that point. And I'm quoting, I was a tyrant at heart. I wanted to have unlimited power over his soul, meaning his friend. I wanted to instill in him a contempt for his surroundings. I demanded of him a disdainful and complete break with those surroundings. I frightened him with my passionate friendship. I reduced him to tears, to hysterics. He was a naive and giving soul. But when he gave himself to me entirely, I began to hate him immediately and pushed him away from me. He was a boy who understood that he was a tyrant, who understood that all he wanted was control over other people. And again is what ends up leading to his civil service. Even though he says he only was there for food, he was also there because he had control over other people. And if you remember from the episode we did on the Dhammapada with Buddha, Buddha has this quote where he says, The one were to conquer a million men in battle, that man who conquers himself is the greater victor. And with the underground man, you have the opposite. You have a man who wants to wield control, unlimited control over another man's life. And it has never left him since that point. And he has never really changed since he was a kid. And you see this clearest when he meets this woman named Liza. And he meets her after he has this reunion with his old classmates that goes very poorly. He meets this Liza and he talks to her. And, you know, in his conversations with her, you actually see a part of the underground man that has been hidden. He describes things about human relationships, about a father's love for his daughter, about a, a man's love for his wife in such a way that you would think that he was a, a man who was in love with a woman, a man who had a daughter, but he doesn't have any of these. But as Liza says, you say these things as if you're reading from a book. And Liza is a young woman, is in debt and is selling her body to pay off her debt. And the underground man knows this. And so when he's talking to her, he's trying to convince her that what she's doing is foolish. He's trying to tell her that the life that she's lead, living right now will lead to a despicable life where she hates herself, where she'll be cast out while nobody will know her. This diatribe that he has actually ends up convincing her that she should change her ways. And one of the things that he says is a very powerful and insightful quote. And this is it. They'll cover you with the wet blue clay as quick as they can and go off to the tavern. And that's the end of your memory on earth. Other women's graves are visited by their children, their father, their husbands. But for you, there are no tears, no sighs, no remembrance. And no one in the whole world will ever come to see you. Your name will vanish from the face of the earth as if you had never existed. As if you had never been born at all. Mud in swamps, nothing left to do but knock on your coffin lid at night. And this is a fear not just for Liza, but for so many people. It is the fear that you will not be remembered. This is why many, many people try to accomplish extraordinary feats simply to be remembered in the history books. Whether that's building 
the biggest companies in the world, whether that's climbing the highest mountains, whatever the goal is, people do these things so that they can have a legacy. There is an innate sense in us. There's a sort of hole in the human heart to be remembered for infinity, to be remembered in the annals of human history. And the underground man understands this, right? He understands human psychology better than so many people and uses this to convince Liza that she's not going to be remembered if she continues living this way. And when he ends up finishing his speech, you know, Liza is crying and and the underground man doesn't know what to do. He's also moved by his own words. So he says, hey, here's my address. Come to me. And when he walks away, he thinks that Liza's never going to show up. So when he goes back to his place, the interesting thing is he wants her to show up. He starts dreaming about their reunion. It's as if Liza has been an angel that changes the underground man's life and his his mindset and his the way he thinks about things. So he starts dreaming about their union. And he goes on to say, Sometimes I'd even begin to dream and rather sweetly. For example, I save Liza precisely by the fact that she comes to me and and I talk to her. I mold her, educate her. Finally, I notice that she loves me, loves me passionately. I pretend not to understand. I don't know, however, why I pretend. Just for the beauty of it, I suppose. Finally, embarrassed, beautiful, she throws herself trembling and sobbing at my feet and tells me that I am her savior and that she loves me more than anything in the world. I'm astonished. But, I say, Liza, do you really think I haven't noticed your love for me? I saw everything, I guessed, but I didn't dare to intrude on your heart first because I had an influence over you and was afraid that you'd deliberately compel yourself to return my love out of gratitude, that you'd force yourself to feel something for me that perhaps doesn't exist. And I didn't want that because that's despotism. That's indelicate. Well, in short, here I launch it to some sort of European George Sandian inexplicably notable subtleties but now now you're mine you're my creation you're my you're pure beautiful and you're my beautiful wife as lovely as that sounds you 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 see the similarity between that and what he said previously about his friend in high school when he says i wanted to instill in him a contempt for his surroundings i demanded of him his whole soul i wanted unlimited power over his soul and that's precisely the same thing. The dream that the underground man has, this beautiful dream that he has about Liza, is still in the same vein of wanting to control another person, wanting to wield power over somebody else. So he waits for days. Liza doesn't show up. Eventually, the underground man is arguing with his servant, and he doesn't want to pay his servant. He's saying, look, I'm not going to pay you, Apollon, that's his name. I'm not going to pay you because... I'm just not going to pay you. That's his reasoning. So he holds back the rubles that is owed to him. But Apollon refuses to bow. And this irritates the underground man. And they get into a big squabble. And in the middle of the squabble, Eliza shows up. And the underground man is embarrassed by all of this. But he ends up inviting her inside the house. She sits down. And she's sitting across from him. And he doesn't know what to do. He's both surprised and happy that she's here. But he's unable to confront the possibility of having a real and true relationship with somebody where you don't have to be selfish, where you have to forgive, where you have to love the other person for themselves. 
And because of this, he turns to her and starts to mock her and tells her that all the things, all the beautiful things that he had said to her when they first met, you know, he did all this knowing, knowing full well that what he was saying were to harm her, to make fun of her and to taunt her. So he says, why did you come here? Answer me, answer me. I cried, hardly knowing what I was doing. I'll tell you, my good girl, why you came. You came because I spoke some words of pity to you then. So now you've come all tender and want to hear more words of pity. Well, you may as well know that I was laughing at you then, and I'm laughing at you now. Why are you shuddering? Yes, I was laughing at you. I had been insulted just before at dinner by those men who arrived just before me that evening. I came to your house in order to give one of them a beating, an officer, but I didn't succeed. I didn't find them. So I had to avenge the insult on someone to restore my ego. You turned up, so I vented my spleen on you and laughed at you. I had been humiliated, so I wanted to humiliate. I had been treated like a rag, so I wanted to show my power. That's what it was, and you thought I come there on purpose to save you? Yes. Is that what you thought? Is that what you thought? I knew that she'd perhaps be confused and not understand the details, but I also knew that she'd understand perfectly the essence of what I was saying. That's exactly what happened. She turned white as a handkerchief, wanted to say something, and her lips twisted in pain, but she fell onto a chair as if she'd been cut down by an axe. And all the time afterward, she listened to me with her mouth gaping and her eyes wide open, shuddering with an awful fear. The cynicism, the cynicism of my words crushed her. To save you, I continued, jumping up from my chair and running up and down the room in front of her. To save you from what? Maybe I'm worse than you. Why didn't you throw it back into my face when I was giving you that sermon? Why did you come here? To preach us morality? Power. Power was what I wanted then. Sport was what I wanted. I wanted your tears, your humiliation, your hysteria. That's what I wanted then. Of course, I couldn't keep it up then because I'm crap. I got scared and, and the devil knows why gave you my address, gave it to you because I'm an idiot. Afterwards, even before I got home, I was cursing you to nigh heavens because of that address. I hated you already because I had lied to you then. Because the only thing that gives me pleasure is to play with words, to dream in my head. But do you know what I really want? That you should all go to hell. That's what I want. I want peace. Yes, I'd sell the whole world for a penny right now as long as I was left in peace. Should the whole world go to hell or should I go without my tea? I say the whole world can go to hell as long as I always get my tea. The epitome of a nihilist right there. Plays with this woman's mind, with her emotions, with her soul. By giving her pity, by showing her empathy. But then when she leaves the house the place that she was at and probably at a significant cost to her. And she comes here to what the underground man calls a savior. You know, the savior turns around and mocks her. And the interesting thing is Liza gets up and simply leaves. And when she leaves the house, the underground man, I think realizes he's made a mistake when he goes after her and chases her. He can't find her and she's gone. So he says, where did she go? Why am I running after her? Why? To fall down before her, to weep with repentance, to kiss her feet, to implore her forgiveness? I longed for that. My whole breast was being torn to pieces, and never, never will I recall this moment with indifference. 
But why, I thought, wouldn't I hate her? Perhaps as soon as tomorrow, just because I kissed her foot today, would I bring her happiness? Haven't I found out today once again for the hundredth time what my true worth is? Wouldn't I torment her to death? I stood in the snow, gazing into the confused darkness and thought about this. And with that, the challenge for this week is to remember that your impulses are very much alive. And it is in one sense what makes you human. But nonetheless, the purpose of living is to become more virtuous with each passing year and to not be like the underground man who never changed and refuses to change because he believed that to change, to become better was to be idiotic. It was only foolish people who did that. But on the flip side, the underground man realizes that your free will is what makes you human. And for us this week, it's to remember that you have the freedom to choose what is good and to do, choose what is bad for you. And there's a quote by Confucius that I've mentioned previously, and it goes something like this. At 15, I set my heart upon learning. At 30, I had planted my feet firmly upon the ground. At 40, I no longer suffered from perplexities. At 50, I knew the bidding of heaven. At 60, I heard them with a docile ear. At 70, I could follow the dictates of my own heart, for what I desired no longer overstepped the boundaries of right. And our goal is to get to a point where what we desire in our hearts and what is right align, that there is no contradiction in these two things. And what Confucius says here is precisely the opposite of the underground man's life. For us to become fully aware and also in, to act in a way that it aligns with what is good, what is true, what is beautiful. That is what the whole point of this life is. And last week, I forgot to add the challenge, so I'm adding it to this. And so the other challenge is to be present, to notice all the things around you as much as possible, especially when you're out in nature, and even more important, when you're spending time with your loved ones. Because it is easy, so easy, to be distracted by looking at the news by checking the phones, by going on computers, by not paying attention, by zoning out. But as Toll reminds us, it is only this present, this now that exists. And the more present you can be, the more alive and the better you will become. And with that, I'm going to wrap. So thank you for listening to this episode. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends. Feel free to tag me if you share it on social media. You can find me on Twitter at IJMAKN, and that's the same handle on Instagram. And if you're not already subscribed to this podcast on Spotify or Apple or wherever else you listen to, do subscribe and please give me a rating and helps people find this podcast and reach more people. Till next week, peace. Peace.